Are you guys ready to go home? Yeah. I'm not. But I'll tell you what. I do miss my little daughter. I am ready to see her. And then when I get home, I'm going to tell my wife, you can go into labor now. And then we'll have another baby. It's going to be wonderful. But I've had a great time hanging out with you guys this week. Um, where's Venture at? Uh, Venture, uh, you really have an unfair advantage with the Bishop family. They win everything every year. And so I just like to give my kudos to the Bishop siblings. Uh, give it up for them. They can, yeah. Um, well, let me do this. Uh, let me pray for us. And then we're going to hop into God's word this evening. God, we love you and we're so thankful Lord, for another great week of camp, and God, we're thankful for your word, Lord, that teaches us everything we need to know about who you are, and even tonight as we look at practical steps of living as an exile in a world that's growing increasingly hostile towards the truth and towards you, Lord, we pray that you would gird these students with hope and equip them with strength to live for you when no one's watching. And Lord, I pray that you would be raising up young men and women like a Daniel. And Lord, I just pray that you would use these lives mightily for your kingdom and for your glory. I pray this in your name. Amen. The number one selling book of all time, other than the Bible, is the book The Pilgrim's Progress. This book was written by John Bunyan in 1678 while John Bunyan was in prison. He was in prison for 12 years for his refusal to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They never locked the door, though. This author of the most prolific book in human history other than the Bible lived for 12 years in a jail cell that wasn't even locked. They told him he could leave at any time as long as he would no longer preach the truth about Jesus. He had a wife, and he had many kids at home, including a blind daughter. And he paid a great price for the sake of Jesus Christ. But Bunyan said this, I would rather suffer here in jail till the moss grows over my eyelids than to compromise. This legendary book, Pilgrim's Progress, is an allegory, which just means a story about the Christian life. It's kind of like a Narnia-esque book. And the main character of this book about the Christian life is appropriately named Christian. And Christian is a man who is journaling or journeying to the celestial city, which is heaven. In one chapter, Christian is traveling with his companion, and his companion's name is Faithful. And they come to a city called Vanity. This city in the story is well-known, it's well-established, and it's well-traveled. And residing within the city of Vanity is a fair, appropriately named Vanity Fair. At this fair, all the worldly goods are sold. Lies, lusts, sexual immorality, houses, treasures, pleasures, popularity, souls, gold, and precious stones. There are many shops within Vanity Fair and Bunyan's story. And they would sell anything and everything that would promise to satisfy and fulfill those who were passing through. 
at the fair, all types of temptations are present that try to lure Christian and faithful. There are seductive shows. There are casinos. There are gambling places. And there are girls available to them. And not only that, within the fair itself, there are many professing Christians who attend fashionable and attractive churches. But they were professing Christians who professed faith in Christ but didn't possess any genuine saving faith. They claimed to follow God, but they lived exactly like the rest of those in the city of Vanity. In Vanity Fair, there are physicians and lawyers and politicians and businessmen. And it says the broad road that leads to destruction brings much commerce there. There's trade and there's traffic and the fair itself is in the middle of the city. And as long as you are traveling in this world, it is impossible to avoid Vanity Fair itself. And as Christian and faithful in the story are traveling, they come to the city of Vanity Fair and immediately there is upheaval in the city. These two men, Christian and faithful, they stood out like a sore thumb. Their dress was different. Different. Their speech was different. Their desires and their interests were different. And they seemed uninterested in everything that Vanity Fair was selling. And in a matter of moments, the city is in uproar. The town is rocked because Christian and faithful are uninterested in anything they have to offer. And then the story goes, as Bunyan writes in the late 1600s, that a mob is formed and the people aggressively gather around Christian and faithful and they say, do business with us. What will you buy? I remember even as a young kid, my dad used to read us the children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. And I remember he used to, he used to use the term, I'm going to get in your kitchen and I'm going to threaten you to buy. And he used to act it out for us as kids. And even as I read the unabridged version Later on in college, the story still rings true. The mob is formed, and they grab the young men, Christian and faithful. What will you buy? Do business with us. We sell everything at this fair. And in the story, Christian and faithful respond and say, what we seek, this fair does not sell. And it says in the story that the mob responded by sneering and saying, what? What you seek this fair doesn't sell. We sell everything. What will you buy? And Christian and faithful respond and say, we will buy the truth. And when the people heard this, there was first a hush, then a rage, and the people rose up in a storm and they took Christian and faithful and they whipped them and caged them and then beat Christian even further. And then they took Christian, his companion, and they beat him and then burnt him at the stake. Because of faithful's commitment to buy what the fair did not sell. Namely, the truth. This is one of the key chapters and the best-selling fiction book of all time. What will you buy? We will buy the, the truth. The story is just a glimpse of what we see in Daniel. 
those who stand for the truth and those who live for the truth will face opposition. They will face hostility. And in the book of Daniel, there are indeed exiles. And the question we have been asking throughout this week is how can I live with resilience, which means just unaffected, in a world that is opposed to the truth of God? I want to be practical with you tonight as much as possible. And in many ways, these different points that I'll give you will just whet your appetite for further study. And you can go home and talk to your pastors and your counselors about these things, but can I do something very simple with you tonight, even as we wrap up a theme on Daniel and living as an exile? I want to give you eight critical truths to live for God in an ungodly world. Eight pillars, if you will, that you can build your life on when the world around you is building their house on sinking sand. Are you ready? Number one. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Number one. If you're going to live for God in an ungodly world, you need to, first and foremost, entrust yourself to a sovereign God. Entrust yourself to a sovereign God. The book of Daniel begins, and we talked about this on Monday morning. It says, in the third year of King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem. And it says, and the Lord gave him into his hand. The book of Daniel begins with a sovereign God, and the book of Daniel ends with a sovereign God who is seated on the throne. Daniel built his life upon this truth, and he began his book with this very reality. Are you going home to a lot of unknown? Do you want to be a young man or a young woman like Daniel? Then you need to yield your life to a sovereign God there's much that I could say here and much more has been said. But God is sovereign even in our suffering and even in our great trials and in our great pain. In Genesis 50, there's a story where Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And he spends many years in jail and he finally sees his brothers again and he says something that I think at times we confuse. He says, what you meant for evil, God, what? He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I think at times we read that verse and think it says, what you meant for evil, God turned into good. Meaning that we have this belief that God is taking bad situations and going, man, these are the ingredients I have. It's like at times I remember when you know, I first got married with Katie, we'd be like, this is all we have in the fridge. And then she'd make some dinner and be like, I don't even know where this came from. This is great. You know, like, how did you do this? And we view this as if God is taking bad situations going, all right, Gabriel, Give me a little of this and a little of that. And he's trying to remedy the situation. But God is not taking bad situations and turning them into good situations. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is not calling divine audibles in heaven like Bill Belichick. He's not a coach going, eh, down there, you know, put this play in. We're going to pull a Hail Mary. No, he is completely sovereign, even in our pain. And Daniel, as a 15-year-old, as he walks a 900-mile death march to a new city and a new empire with a new king, understands God is totally sovereign. God is not hamstrung by suffering. And there are no gaps in God's sovereignty. Maybe this is discomforting to you to hear that God is sovereign even over our suffering. But let me tell you this, friend. There is no comfort in your suffering unless God is sovereign over it. 
because we can trust that he is working out his plan even when we cannot connect the dots. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon says, listen, friend, this is the pillow you can lay your head on at night. There is no trial. There has never been a tear shed in your life outside of a sovereign God who, watch this, is also infinite in his wisdom and perfect in his love towards his children. At times, the knowledge of God's sovereignty, meaning that he is in control, can compound our suffering, meaning it make it even worse when it's not appropriately conjoined with his other attributes. At times, we look at the attributes of God as little pieces of a big pie, and we say, well, God is 90% love, 5% just, but that's not who God is. God is all of his attributes, all of the time, in full measure. And so God's sovereignty must always be conjoined and tethered and anchored to his love and his wisdom. After college, I got my work holiday visa, and I went to go work down under in Australia. I showed up, and I got my work holiday visa, and I worked in an acai berry smoothie shack on the Gold Coast. And, uh, you know, I worked with a bunch of people, like, swam with sharks and scared of the ocean to this day. And uh, I remember when I was there, I was there with, you know, one of my best friends. And when I was there... Uh, I had lived with this guy's family most of college, and he got a call from his dad, and he said, it's mom, and I had always referred to his mom as Mama Dixon because she was like my second mom. You know, she took care of me. He said, it's mom. You guys need to come home. Micah got on a plane that day. I flew home the next day. We got to the hospital. We sang a hymn, and she died. And it was one of the more shocking things in my life because... She had breast cancer previously, and it had gone away. That's why we went on the trip, because she was fine. But I remember at the funeral, nine days later, a man came up and just slapped Micah on the shoulder and said, God's sovereign. But the reality is bare and glib expressions about God's sovereignty in that regard do not help us at all if you've experienced deep pain, unless, unless you also know, and I think the person that said that had good intentions, but it doesn't help us unless we know that the God who is also sovereign is infinite in his wisdom, meaning the plan he is working everything out towards is one that is always, always, always for his glory and for your good. I want you to watch this. God has never worked out a single thing, if you're a Christian, for his glory that is not also for your good. And there will never be anything that God works out for your good that is not also for his glory. And this God who is infinitely wise is also totally, totally loving towards his children. You cannot divorce one attribute of God from another we read passages like Romans 8, 28 that says, for we know that God is working all things out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But you need to understand, what is the good God is working everything out in your life towards? If God is working everything in your life, even the pain, even the trials, even the tears out for good, then what is the good he's working everything towards? It tells us in the next verse that God is working everything in our life towards our own conformity 
into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know that God's great plan for your life? Whenever you hear a preacher say, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, God's wonderful plan for your life includes great pain because even in our pain, that's what God uses to conform us into his image because God's great plan for your life is that you become like his one and only son who saved you. This is how Job, the man who experiences great pain in the Old Testament, who lost his family, who lost everything, can say, happy is the, the man whom the Lord corrects. Because unless Job understands that God uses even dark threads and deep knots to weave in the end a beautiful tapestry for his glory and for our good, then we cannot trust God. I don't know all of your stories. Many of you have suffered more than I have. But the truthfulness of this reality is not based upon experience, but upon God's word. And the scripture teaches us, and Daniel understood this, that our suffering is not for nothing. Elizabeth Elliot says, our deepest lessons are learned from the deepest suffering. Gold must pass through the fire to be pure. And Christians are similarly refined in the furnace of affliction and pain. It's C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, who says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Every other religion tries to evade the problem of suffering and pain, but at the very center of the Christian faith, there is a symbol of a cross. And Jesus says, pick it up and follow me. Maybe you're asking, how can I trust a sovereign God? How can I trust a God who's up there on the throne and he's in control of everything? Well, first and foremost, I want you to understand that God does not exercise his sovereignty capriciously. That's a big word. But what it means is that God is not in heaven exercising his sovereignty without any regard to who it affects or how it affects them. In John 11, there's a passage. And it's a passage where Lazarus dies and Jesus is traveling to Bethany, and he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet when he gets there, he sees that they are weeping, and he sees that they are sad because Lazarus is dead. And Jesus also, what? He weeps. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Two words. Jesus wept. The question is, why is Jesus weeping when he knows that in a matter of moments, he's going to raise Lazarus up from the dead? Why? Why doesn't he show up on the scene, see them crying, and go... Oh, you're going to love this. No. Why doesn't he do that? Why instead does he weep? You know why? Because your sovereign God is a God who is also a sympathetic high priest who feels what we feel and loves you as his own child. And furthermore, one of the ironclad reasons you can trust the sovereignty of God is because in the sovereignty of God, he sent his one and only son to die on the cross at the perfect time for sin. So if you want to live for Christ in a hostile world, you need to first and foremost entrust your life to a God who is totally sovereign. Secondly, if you're to live for God in an ungodly world, you need to find delight in the word of God. You need to find delight in the word of God. I recently found... Um, a cool website, it's called Google. And I typed into the search bar, 
how can I be happy? And within 0.1 seconds, 7.47 billion results instantly populated. And I clicked on one of the top articles that showed up on Google, this website. You should check it out. And I was drawn to a New York Times article called How to Be Happy, which encourages unhappy people to find true happiness in the following ways. Number one, stop thinking negative thoughts. Number two, treat yourself like your own best friend. I have no idea what that means. Number three, practice optimism. Number four, find your happy place to live. The article then says, if you move to Finland, you'll be amongst the happiest people on earth. Thanks, no thanks. The article continues encouraging unhappy people to do any task that can be finished in one minute. So watch this. I mean, this is literally the New York Times saying how you can be happy. <laughs> Here's their practical strategy. Thanks. Hang up a coat. Read a letter and toss it. Answer an email. I thought emails were conjoined with unhappiness. But it says file a paper. And then it says if you want to be happy, just take one dish and put it in the dishwasher. Now, if you're interested in reading what else the world has to say about finding true happiness, you can go to any of the other 7.4 billion results. Or furthermore, you can read any of the thousands of books that are published on the subject every single year. I'm reading a book called The American Paradox right now. I'm working with Zondervan on a project. I'm writing a book on anxiety and depression and the character of God. And I'm reading a book, The American Paradox, that describes our present generation it says this, people are growing up hearing that they can be anything they want to be, but they don't know what they want to be. There seems to be no cause for their unhappiness, which makes them even more unhappy. They are more connected to more people than anyone in all of human history, and yet they have never felt more alone. The more they want to be accepted, the more alienated they feel. They have never had so much, and conversely have never felt like they have so little. Sound familiar? The world is looking to be happy, and yet there is only one place where happiness is found. I find it so interesting that sometimes we forget that God made you with an innate desire to be filled with joy, with happiness. And what the world is looking for, I find it so fascinating that the book of Psalms begins not with a great call to praise God, but with this beginning, how happy, how blessed, same word, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of scoffers, nor sit in the seat of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The Bible says that the secret to the happy life is to commit your life to the word of God. We have already observed that we are useless and joyless as Christians if we conform to the world. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like them. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. This world is like a super glue that wants to stick it to you. It wants you to become one of them. But if we stop there and this camp was, don't be like the world, don't do this, don't do this, then that would be the essence of legalism. But the Christian faith, watch this, is not one of mere abstinence or staying away from bad things and from the fleeting delights of the world. But the Christian faith is one where superior delights, greater satisfaction, 
and lasting pleasure are offered to God's children and God's children alone. Many people growing up in church today believe that thou shall not is written across every single pleasure and thou shall is written across every misery. But God's word says, do you want to live life with a capital L? Do you want to be happy? Do you feel the emptiness within your own soul? It says, well, happy is the man who delights his life in the word of God. The world says, come find happiness here. But God's word says, they can never offer true happiness. Maybe you've tried what the world has to offer, and maybe you can affirm the lyrics to the hymn that says, I've tried the broken cistern. Cisterns are, these things in the book of Jeremiah, there was fresh springs available to them. Fresh springs for the people of God where there was fresh water. But instead of drinking this fresh water, they went to go drink from the cisterns where all the sewage would pass through. And God comes to them and he equates this to their spiritual life saying, instead of going to the fountain and spring of pleasure, you are filling your life and consuming sewage. It will never satisfy. It's not good. And so the hymn says, I've tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and they mocked me as I wailed. The world offers water from muddy, broken cisterns, but it says the happy man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. I just want to encourage you, and I could go on this for an hour, and I won't. Your life is a direct reflection of what you do with the Word of God. And you need to develop a relationship with the Word of, with the word of God where if you do not read it, you miss it. It's not legalism. The Bible is the revelation of who my God is. And I want to know him. And I can tell you this, everyone look at me for a moment and sear this upon your memory. Your life will be, in five years, a direct reflection of the level of commitment you make to God's precious truth. Shallow relationship with scripture, shallow relationship with God himself. Because you cannot know who God is unless he has revealed himself, and he has revealed himself in one way, and that is through his word. And if you go, wait, what about God's spirit? God's spirit always works in accordance with his word. And anything good that God's people have to say are only truths that are found in his word. And if you rob your life of his word, you rob your life of joy. You rob your life of understanding what the will of God is. And the psalmist says he delights in God's word. Why? Well, it's not just the words on the page, but in the God of the word. Because Psalm 119, 41 says, May your loving kindness come to me, O Lord, according to your word. You will never understand the love of God until you devote your, your life to the word of God. Because this book right here is God's love letter to his children. Your love for God is a direct reflection of your understanding of his love for you, right? We love because he what? First loved us. How can you possibly understand his love for you in the first place? unless you read his love letter to you 
and permeate and saturate your life with this truth. Number three, if you want to live for God in a culture of hostility, you need to commit your life to the people of God. And we're gonna start to move through these. The Christian life is not a solo project. You're not an individual artist. You are part of a family. When God saves you, he doesn't just, we always use the term that, you know, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Yes, you may have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because he knows you individually and personally, but God is not calling you to be saved just personally. He calls you to be saved corporately because he calls you and invites you into the family of God. One of the things that's become so accustomed to us is the way we pray at the beginning of all of our prayers. I remember when I was in Papua New Guinea a number of years ago with the team at Hume Lake, I was struck because everyone in the tribe at that point, they didn't speak a word of English. They, they lived almost as if they were a thousand years old. You know, there's no technology. And yet I watch one of these men who had been saved in the tribe, he's wearing a loincloth. And he begins his prayer like this. Dear Papa God, and then proceeds to pray in English or in his own language. But he uses that beginning, dear Papa God, because there was no other term or phrase in his own language that described the intimacy that he had with God. And we pray, dear Heavenly Father, because we are all invited to be part of God's family. And if you starve your life of the community of God's family, you will fail. In the abundance of counselors, there is much wisdom. You cannot live your life without accountability. Some of you struggle with sin. You need other men and women in your life. And let me tell you something about accountability. Accountability always, 100% of the time, involves someone older and godlier than you. Accountability, listen here, especially dudes in regards to purity. Accountability is not the opportunity for you to justify the continued nature of your sin because of the commonality of it amongst your friend group. You failed, I failed. You failed, I failed too. Well, I guess we're all failures. You need to get someone in your life that calls you to the high standard of holiness. Accountability is not pass, you know, just passively accepting and justifying your sin. It includes people your age, but accountability involves an older godly man and an older godly woman, if you're a young lady. That's what it says in Titus 2. And you need the people of God. You live in a world where people say they can watch church in their pajama pants and stay home and drink a coffee. That's one of the most ludicrous, unbiblical ideas you could ever think of. Because the church is not just something you attend. It's a body and a family you belong to. That's like saying, I'm gonna Skype into Thanksgiving dinner. No, you don't Skype into Thanksgiving. You get your booty in the chair, son. And let me tell you this about church, because you're going to go to an environment where it's like, hey, you're going to college? Let me tell you this. When you pick a church when you go to college, you pick a church that's also multi-generational. Because the Bible says the prescription for young people is to have older godly people in their life, not a bunch of people that pool their own ignorance together. When I, I'm a pastor of a church plant now, you know one of the prerequisites for me? when I was planting a church or accepting a church, I knew I needed gray hair on the board with me. Because you know what I lack? Perspective. Because you know how old I am? 30. I know, it's amazing, I'm 30. <laughs> so you need to surround your life with the people of God in the church of God. Number four, you ready? Number four, 
you need to run from sin. I wanna, I wanna talk with you with a degree of love here. Tomorrow, you're gonna go down the hill and you're gonna be tempted by the same things you indulged in the week before you got up here. And I want you to know Satan's strategy. Satan is going to attack you and make you feel comfortable. First of all, one of the greatest strategies in the military is to feign that there is a ceasefire in the battle so that the other enemy can gather his resources. You are in for a battle the moment you walk in your room tomorrow. And some of you, Satan wants to discourage right away the change or the conviction that you felt up here wasn't genuine. And so he's going to try to lure you back into the sin that once had a hold on you. But here's the reality I want you to understand. It says in Romans 13, 14, to make no provision for the flesh. Whatever causes you to sin, you need to root it out of your life. Don't weed whack. Rip up the roots. Can I tell you what this means for me personally? Here's an iPhone. I was in ninth grade at my Christian high school the first time someone showed me pornography. I'd never even heard of it. And my buddy in the parking lot at my Christian private high school said, I want to show you something. And it was the first time I've ever seen a pornographic image in my life. I went home and I asked my dad about it, and honestly, he didn't really know what to say, and I just felt like weird about it. And over time, it became like just a struggle for me. It was just something I just didn't understand. It wasn't even necessarily explicit. It was just social media stuff that began to blind me to the wickedness and the vileness that was here on a tool that fits in your pocket. Almost every single one of you carry a little brothel around in your pocket. So for me, here's what this means. I wanna make no provision for the flesh and one of the things that means for me as a 30-year-old man is I am self-distrusting. I don't trust myself. So if your temptation is to look at something inappropriate, well, some of you guys spend seven hours a day on the gateway drugs to your own addictions. Don't tell me you care at all about fighting sin of pornography when you also surround yourself with basically soft pornography on social media half your life. I mean, let's be real here. You root out sin from the bottom and you gut it out. You know why? Because Jesus is infinitely better and sin blinds you to who God is. It robs you of fellowship with God. You understand one of the chief motivations for me in pursuing holiness is because I want to have fellowship with God. And so here's, I, I don't have any apps on my phone still. I can't even download an app without my wife or people in my life entering a passcode. You know why? Because I don't wanna have to fight temptation. Jesus doesn't say fight temptation. He says run from temptation, right? We're not trying to see how far I can go and then can I like, can I, you know, at the very last second, you know, get, do away with it or whatever. No, I don't want temptation in my life. So I don't watch shows that I have to fast forward parts of it and say, yeah, it's fine. Everyone else watches it. Or you just have to watch the, you know, like, yeah, you got a couple things. No, I don't want that in my life because I don't want anything to steal my affection for God. 
And can I just tell you what Jesus says? It's not just that it robs you of fellowship with God, the sin in your life, and whatever it might be, and I'm using purity as an example. Jesus says, and I want you to listen to this, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, what? Tear it out. For it is better for you to enter heaven with one eye than for your whole body and soul to be thrown into hell. It's better for you to go to heaven never having any social media or any internet or any smartphone than for your body and your soul to be consumed in hell because you are so wrapped up and entangled in sin. Your soul is at stake. And so the Bible says, run from it. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, run from your sin. Break off that ungodly, impure relationship. Have you already gone too far? You will again. Break it up. Unless you're getting married next week, break up. Oh, you love your girlfriend or your boy boyfriend more than honoring God? That is revelatory of your own heart. Can I, can I stay in this relationship and still honor God? Well, you've already dishonored God in this relationship, and this relationship is already keeping you from honoring God. So no. Let go of the things that steal your affection for God because compromise is a poison. Does this mean that God can't redeem those relationships? No. It just means that you want to be with someone that pushes you towards righteousness. So the question, how far is too far, is the wrong question. You want to marry someone that makes you more godly, not tries to rob you of God's joy. Number five, run towards God in prayer. Run towards God in prayer. In Daniel 9, Daniel is the definition of prayer. He's praying to God and he's confessing his sin and I want, to, I want you to know that there are a number of different types of prayer. Number one, there's thanksgiving. You thank God for who he is. You adore God, meaning you. You say, God, you're sovereign. God, you're majestic. God, you're holy. Prayer is not just, God, give me, give me, give me, give me. It's thank you, God, for every single breath you've given me today. I know that waking up this morning is a gift from God. It means I adore you, God. You are great and glorious. You sit on the throne of heaven and every wave that crash, crashes on every single beach right now is because you are a sovereign God. You pray and you pray prayers of supplication, which means you plead with God for the people in your life. You confess your sin. God, I, I'm so sorry for the sin in my life. Maybe even as I talked about impurity, you remember that you, your life has been marred by impurity, but it says in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You go to God in your moments of anxiety and you know and you pray. How do you pray? I mean, what is prayer? You pray. You want to know how I pray? I pray the scripture. I read in Psalm 46 that God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. That's what Psalm 46 says. So when I'm reading the Bible, and I just want to be practical, how do I pray? I pray this way. God, help me to believe that you are my refuge and my strength. God, help me to believe that you are an ever-present help in times of trouble. God, even as I just read that, you are ever-present. Help me to live my life as if you are ever-present next to me, with me, and you love me. God, help me to believe this. And God, would I, 
Would I run to you as my refuge before I ever run to any other person or any other idea or any other sin? Prayer will drive out also the sin in your life. Prayer and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will either consume sin or sin will choke out prayer. Number six, and I, I wanna, I have to hit this. How do you live for God in a world of hostility? You need to remember the gospel. Last night we talked about the gospel, but Paul tells Timothy, remember the gospel. Do you know why? It's because every growth into the image of God is rooted right here in remembering who Jesus is and what he's done for you because it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. So at times, even your pursuit of becoming more like Jesus can become moralistic determination. I just wanna be better. But the holiness that God desires in our life is rooted from the spring of total gratitude by recalling and reciting the gospel. Why did you enjoy this week? Even the worship that we sang, it's a worship that testifies to what God has done. So you must remember the gospel. You must dwell on it. You must preach it to yourself every day. You must wake up in the morning and before you scroll on your phone, you must bow down on your knees and say, God, I was dead in my sin and you saved me. You've written my name in the Lamb's book of life. I mean, I love that idea. Right now, there's a book in heaven with my name written in it. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid the full penalty for my sin. And he's given me his Holy Spirit. So you must remember the gospel. Number seven, you must remember your mission. And surely a whole theme could be done on this. But you need to understand. Okay, I want you to think with me. Think with me. If Jesus saved you so you can be in a, relation, a relationship with him and welcome you into his family, then if you're a Christian, why doesn't he bring you to heaven right now? Why are you left here on this earth? Well, you might say to glorify God. Well, I want you to think with me. There is only one single reason if you're a Christian, you are still on planet earth. Not three, not two, not one. There is only one reason you are left here on planet Earth. What did I say? <laughs> what? What? We're all tired. <laughs> there is not one. No, there is not three, not two, not... Kidding. <laughs> there is one reason you've been left here on planet Earth, and let me tell you what it is. It's to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who do not know Jesus Christ. And if you miss this, you miss God's will for your life. You want to know what God's will is? I know what God's will is for your life. It's that you be a kingdom ambassador. There are people that live in your neighborhoods, that are in your classes, that are on your sports team, and are in your family. Some of you share a bedroom with people that are going to an eternity in hell. And God has placed you on this earth for this time to advance his kingdom. And you cannot live in a world that is hostile towards God and hide from the people that are opposed to the truth. You must stand bold for the truth and proclaim the truth because people are dying without Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, and it says, how will they know without a preacher? How will they hear unless someone tells them about Jesus Christ? And do you know the answer? They won't. I understand this is... We're walking through different types of categories, but I want you to understand this. 
I'm gonna ask you a question, and then when I'm done, I want you to say, they won't. How are the people you're around going to be saved by Jesus Christ if they don't hear about Jesus Christ from you? Say, they won't. They won't. So your mission is to pray for boldness and to make disciples. And number eight, and we'll be done in just a moment. If you're to live with resilience in a world of hostility, you need to fix your hope on heaven. The question that haunts mankind is the one that Job once asked. He says, if a man dies, will he live again have you ever thought about this? Jesus, what happens when we die? Some of you could not wake up in the morning. That's the reality. James says, come now you who say today and tomorrow we'll do such and such and we'll go here and do this. You don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. And the question is, what happens when we die? Seriously, think about it. Your whole world and your entire culture is curating some sort of a system where you think that you will live on for all of eternity. Jesus comforts his disciples by saying in John 14, 1, I go to prepare a place for you in glory. People who love their family do great things to prepare for them. My wife goes absolute bonkers for my half birthday. She does a lot for me for my half birthday. Even my friend Sarah Sarah chose to get married on my half birthday. She says it was coincidental, but I don't think so. She loves me. We had a great time working here, but people do absurd things for the people that they love. Not everyone is a party planner, but everyone who loves someone dearly understands that preparation for those you cherish is not a chore, but it's a delight. And if we understand this on a human level, I want you to understand that how much more will our great and loving God prepare wonderful things for those whom he has chosen to pour out his love towards. The greatest celebrations, the greatest events, and the greatest homes necessitate great preparation. And God has been preparing his home for his children before time began. Jesus says this, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, if it were not so, if it was untrue, if it was a myth of human hope, I would never have told you. Jesus says, I am a God who cannot lie. I have never told a fib. I've never exaggerated. I've never embellished. I tell you the stone hard truth. I've never stretched or never shortened the truth. We remember that the critique of Karl Marx, he made this critique against Christianity. He said that, Religion is the opiate of the masses. But Jesus looks at you and says, I want you to understand. And this is what was precious to exiles in the New Testament as Nero used to take Christians. Nero used to take Christians, dip them in wax, and light them as candles to give light to his city. And do you know what made them resilient as they stood there in the flames? This world is not my home, and it's not your home if you're a Christian. Our home is in heaven, and Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have never told you. It would be cruel, Jesus says, to let you live your life 
and this delusion divorced from reality. But the truth is Jesus looks at you through his living and active word and says, if you're a son and daughter of the king, there are palatial accommodations in glory for you. And when you get there, you will not show up at a Motel 6 and you will not arrive at a warehouse where they go, well, who's this guy? Name, last name, how do you spell that? No, you will be welcomed. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome into the heaven and home of your father who loved you and bought you with his blood. That's your home. Your home is not here on earth. Your home is in heaven. And the Christian fixes their mind there. This is the first and simplest and best part of heaven. Jesus is there. J.C. Ryle says this, I am a dying man in a dying world. All before me is unseen. The world to come is a harbor unknown. He just says, I don't know what it's gonna look like in heaven. But he says this, but Christ is there and that is enough. If that doesn't excite you, maybe you don't know Christ. Because what makes heaven heaven is that Jesus will be there. But if you don't love Jesus, why would that excite you? First Peter says that our inheritance in heaven is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's not going anywhere. Moths eat. Steel rusts. But your eternal home is sure. In Revelation, it says that when we arrive in heaven, God will wipe away every tear. There will be no sin, no gossip, no cancer, no disunity, no temptation, no sorrow, no want, no corruption, no loss. My friend, have you experienced the loss of something you hold dear? That is a foreign subject in heaven. There will be no disinterest in the things of the Lord when we arrive, but we will be consumed with God's glory. There will be no apathy towards the gathering of God's people. There will be no coldness towards anyone in your life in heaven, but only warmth towards those that bask in the warmth of the Son of righteousness. In heaven, our Father is there. The Son of God is there. And our family in Christ is there. And do you know what else is there? Paul says, I press on for the reward that will be given to me in heaven. When I get to heaven one day, there will be a, re a reward given to me based on the way that I've lived my life. When I get to heaven, my standing before God is not based on anything I do, but I want you to understand something. There are different rewards in heaven based on the level of faithfulness that you live here during your short stay on earth. This world promises rewards and recognition and it never delivers. And if it does deliver, it's a temporary deliverance that will soon fade. But the rewards that you will be given in heaven last for all of eternity. And that's why we sing in the great hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first, what, begun. Real practically, and then I'm done. Easton, do you have that QR code? Okay, here's a Bible reading plan. You've not been able to use your phones all week, but everyone always says, go home and read your Bible, and then you say, I don't know when to, where to start. 
Here's our ministry dial-in every week. Uh, there's different resources that we publish and produce on the Bible, uh, podcast, video series, uh, books of the Bible, but you guys can check that out. But here is a Bible reading plan, and here's what I want you to do with it. It's called the Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan. If you don't know where to start, just start reading, because a, if you don't have a plan, it's a plan to fail. And here's what this Bible reading plan does, okay? It's four chapters a day. Do you know how long it takes to read four chapters of the Bible a day? For the average reader, 16 minutes. If you don't have 16 minutes for God, um, I, I don't know what to say. Because, yeah, what, you, you have the time. It's four chapters a day, and here's what it'll do. It takes you through the entirety of the Old Testament once a year, and the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs twice a year. Old Testament once, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs twice a year. I've been doing a Bible reading plan since the age of 18 when I decided and when God put in my heart to know him in his word. At times when I'm preaching, I pull truth from the recesses of my brain that I didn't even know were in there because the habit of my life for the last 12 years is to dig into the treasure trove of God's truth. And I would just encourage you guys, there's a Bible reading plan. You need one. Not that everyone has to have a specific plan, but for me, here's how I look at it. If at the end of the day I've done the gym, uh, I've watched the show, uh, hung out with my friends, and I haven't spent time in God's word, it reminds me that God is not my priority. And if God's word is not your priority, neither is your purity, neither is your holiness, neither is your usefulness for God. This is the crux upon which you build your life. And as you read, you, you pray with God and you plead with God, conform me into the image of your son that I'm reading about in your word. And then watch this. At times, you won't even understand what you're reading. Don't get discouraged, friend. Keep reading. And you know what I do when I came to a passage I didn't know? Here's what I did. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes, O God, that I may behold the wonderful things in your word. I just said, God, there are things that I'm coming to that I don't understand. And would you grant me understanding through your Holy Spirit? And would I interpret the scripture with scripture, meaning that the Bible always explains the Bible. And if you don't understand the Bible, keep reading the Bible because the Bible over time makes sense of it collectively. And then you surround your life with godly people that can help you understand the truth. And just one last thing. If it's a job with an extra zero at the end of your financial offer, but it's 100 miles away from a Bible-preaching church, don't do it. Because there's nothing in your life more valuable than knowing God's precious word. And that's why we also need the community and people of God in the local church. I love you guys. There's much more I can say, but Sarah's going to get mad at me. Can, um, can I pray for you? Um, wow, I mean, I'm going in the battle. Okay, let me, uh, let me pray and there will be a video. God, we love you. God, I just pray, there's so many things we just talked about and it was a lot of information. But Lord, I pray that if they're gonna live for you in a world that's in, opposed to the truth, they would entrust their life to a sovereign God. 
Lord, that they would find delight in the word of God. Lord, that they would pursue holiness and flee from sin. That they would remove anything in their life that causes them to be tempted unnecessarily. For some of them, that may mean breaking off a relationship. And for others, that might be getting a dumb phone. But it's not just running away from sin, God. We must have our affections renewed because the Christian life is not staying away from things only. It's having our minds renewed through your word and through your spirit so that what we love and what we long for is holiness and Christ-likeness. God, I pray that even as we put up something so simple as a Bible reading plan, Lord, I pray that there would be people in here. I, I, I know it's probably only one or two people that will truly do it, but they would go, I, I want to read the entire Bible this year. It takes 16 minutes a day to read the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice, and Psalms and Proverbs twice in a year. Lord, I just, I, I just think of all the time that we have, and there's nothing more precious than knowing you. That's what makes life worthwhile, and that's why the psalmist prays in Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I love you, God, and I'm so grateful you love me.